right, we are here today with Dr. Elizabeth Matelski. She is joining us from Endicott College up in beautiful Beverly, Massachusetts. Uh, I have personally never been there because, uh, and we'll talk about how I know Liz uh, later uh, in our next podcast, but um, unfortunately due to the pandemic, we were not able to actually ever meet in person. Um, so this is our, you know, what like, 30th virtual encounter over so, the course right. <laughs> of the past month or so. Um, but Liz, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sam. Yeah, we are so excited to have you here and to have you give us sort of your campfire session story of the Salem witch trials that teachers can use in their classes uh, to teach students about the witch trials. And then also, if you're just looking maybe for something fun, but also factual around Halloween, never a bad thing to throw into your curriculum. So um, Liz, thanks so much for being here. And before we get started, I'm just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you personally became interested and connected with the Salem witch trials. Yeah, definitely. So growing up in the Midwest, um, I don't think that the Salem Witch Trials were as much of a, a kind of a core cur curriculum requirement as it is out here in New England, which is where I now teach. And so when I thought about Salem, I probably thought about Hocus Pocus. That was kind of my go-to. <laughs> but I mean, knowing enough about just studying history through regular classes in high school and then in college and then in grad school, you always kind of heard about this thing. And um, there's so many... The, the historiography, which is the history of history. So how historians have interpreted a specific event over a number of years. The historiography of Salem is one of the kind of the hottest and most debated with the least amount of consensus. And so it's always been kind of like a, um, a microcosm or a great lesson about how historians do history just on top of just the intrigue of the story itself. So it really wasn't until I moved to New England to teach at Endicott and they said, hey, we want you to teach a class on the Salem witch trials. And I said, oh, wow, I need to learn a lot in a short amount of time. <laughs> so over the summer of uh, 2016, I just really just immersed myself, completely immersed myself into the history, um, just the story itself. I've always had an interest in public history as well. So the presentation of history to the public, so history outside of the classroom and how the city of Salem now represents and remembers 1692 is really uh, an interesting case in public history as well. So I just find it such a, an enriching, really fascinating story that regardless of if you're interested in women's history or colonial history, or you have um, an interest in dark history, kind of the supernatural and the macabre, um, and I think there's really something for, for everybody in this particular event. Uh, I completely agree. This is, you know, I've been kind of obsessed with the Salem Witch Trial since I was in high school. Um, and there is just so much in it. It's just so incredibly rich um, and just really fun to explore. And that's probably not the appropriate word, <laughs> considering that, you know, people did die um, as a result of this. But it is just so interesting and intriguing. And I think especially in our second episode, we're just gonna really explore, you know, why it's so interesting and intriguing for um, so many people and why it's so um, hotly debated um, among historians and has been uh, for a really long time. Yeah. 
So Liz, I'm going to let you take it away um, and go ahead and start with your version um, of the campfire story that you tell to your students um, at Endicott College. So this is a real treat. We are getting it from <laughs> like from the heart here today. Um, and uh, we are really excited to hear this uh, and just to hear this like story, both like in a comprehensive retelling but also kind of a cozy uh, retelling that uh, teachers can use in their classrooms and uh, make it very approachable and accessible for their students. So Liz, whenever you're ready. I'll take it away, yeah. So I always tell my students that there's two different kinds of history. You've got history with a capital H and history with a lowercase h. And History with a capital H, you might think of about this as like textbook history. This is fixed, this is objective, this is dates and names and places and events, a lot of rote memorization going on. But lowercase history, the kind of history that I find more interesting is more like a journalist or a detective working on a cold case. And we're looking for motives. We're looking for explanations about why something happened. We're digging deeper than a surface understanding of the events. and so. What follows is a little bit of uppercase history with a nod to that lowercase history. And I think when most Americans are thinking about the 17th century, um, it comes from a lot of heavily mythologized events. We think about like the first Thanksgiving at Plymouth um, or Pocahontas purportedly saving Captain John Smith from execution in early Virginia. And then of course we have the Salem witch trials in 1692. And the myths, one of our, our biggest tasks as historians is to separate myth from what actually happened, to separate that, that, fict, that fiction from fact. Um, and that makes the true story that much more difficult to uncover, but I'm gonna do my best. Um, so our story really starts a few miles north of Boston, and that's the settlement of Salem Village. One of the things that I think most surprises visitors to Salem, Massachusetts today is that the Salem witch trials didn't actually start in Salem, Massachusetts. It actually started in nearby Danvers, Massachusetts. But for a variety of reasons, uh, Danvers decided to change its name from Salem Village, perhaps to avoid that notoriety of being connected to this atrocity of 1692. And so what actually the heart, the, the, the epicenter, ground zero for the Salem witch trials is actually in Danvers, Massachusetts. Um, but again, at the time it was called Salem Village. And Salem Village was an agricultural settlement that had come into being as a kind of an overspill, several miles to the west of Salem Town. And Salem Town is now the, the town of Salem. So Salem Town itself had been the site of one of the original points of entry for white settlers from England. John Endicott, after whom the college where I work uh, was named, landed in Salem Town in September of 1628. <clears throat> and according to Cotton Mather, who's the eminent Puritan minister at the time, Salem Town was the center and the firstborn of all of the towns in the colony. And at one time it had been in line to become the capital of New England. Um, in 1692, Salem Town was still one of New England's most important ports. This is a robust and prosperous town that's partic uh, participating in the um, 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 uh, mercantile uh, 
uh, economy at the time. But if we compare that to Salem Village, again, modern day Danvers, they're a struggling, out of focus community. They don't have the right to set their own taxes, to arrange their own civic responsibilities. And independence was denied the village all the way up until 1752. And that's when it became the township of Danvers. So about 500 people lived in Salem Village uh, by 1692. And even though we're only about six miles from the ocean, this is wilderness. This isn't so-called civilization. And the Puritans, which is the primary group that are the kind of perpetrators, the, the actors of the Salem witch trials, the Puritans lived in constant fear of the forests because they could harbor um, an Indian raid or even the devil himself. Now, back in 1670, Salem Village had been granted permission to raise funds for a church and the salary of a minister, but the church wasn't able to admit members of the congregation to the full covenant or administer even communion until 1689, again, not long before the witch crisis began. And so as a result of the difficulties and really tensions caused by this subordinate and impoverished status, the first clergy people all left Salem Village between 1672 and 1689 after troubled and shortened ministries. And it's in the house of the fourth minister, Samuel Paris, that the story really begins. So back in 1688, John Putnam, who's one of the most influential elders of Salem Village, invited Samuel Paris, who was kind of this marginally successful planter and merchant from Barbados invited him to preach in the Salem Village Church. Um, Samuel Paris is kind of a guy who has failed at everything he has tried. And so he decides, all right, maybe I'll try being a minister. So they are negotiating. There's a, a long negotiation, a year long over salary, about inflation adjustments, even about guaranteed free firewood, because you need to have a lot of firewood to get through that winter. So Paris accepted the job as the village minister, and he moved to Salem Village with his wife, Elizabeth, their young daughter, Betty, um, their niece, and I'm, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes, their niece, Abigail Williams, is unsure what her real relationship was to the Paris family, but it's assumed that she's some kind of kin, as well as the enslaved woman, Tituba. So Salem was in the middle of a change. We've got this mercantile elite that's beginning to develop. You've got prominent people in the village who are less willing to assume positions as town leaders. And there's two clans, the Putnams and the Porters. They're competing for control of the village and its pulpit. And a debate was raging over how independent Salem Village should be. Um, if it should be tied to the, to the agricultural region, or should it be more tied to Salem Town, which again is that center of sea trade. Now sometime in January, in an exceptionally cold winter in 1692, Samuel Paris and his wife, they're, they're off into town, they're off in village, they're, they're ministering to their flock in the village, and they leave behind their daughter Betty, who's age nine, Abigail Williams, who's age 11, in the care of Tituba, the enslaved woman who worked in their home, who entertained them with stories about her childhood. And sometime after that, the two girls began acting strangely. They're, they're wriggling, they're writhing with apparent involuntary movements that seem to be more extreme than just epileptic fits. And so Reverend Paris calls the local physician 
William Griggs to ask for a verdict on what was happening. And I always find this to be so interesting that when Paris sees his, his daughter and his niece having these convulsions, crying out in pain, complaining that someone's biting them or they're being stabbed or that they're hot or they're cold or their body is moving in these unnatural ways, he doesn't immediately assume witchcraft. He doesn't immediately assume demonic possession. He says, I think there's something physically wrong with them. So he calls the doctor. And it's the doctor, William Griggs, who after he has observed the girls, in his own view, he said that the children were bewitched and quote, under an evil hand. This talk of witchcraft increased when other playmates of Betty, including 12-year-old Ann Putnam Jr., 17-year-old Mercy Lewis, 17-year-old uh, Mary Walcott began to exhibit similar unusual behavior, and the widespread belief that witches targeted children made the doctor's diagnosis seem increasingly likely. Now, Paris and his family, they're praying for deliverance, but other villagers weren't so satisfied to kind of sit back and wait. So we've got um, an aunt of one of the afflicted girls, as they came to be known. Mary Walcott was the girl afflicted. Her aunt, Mary Sibley, had a recipe for a witch cake. And this is a, a kind of a, a traditional English technique for identifying witches. If you think about it, it's kind of like a like white magic, like counter magic, like a lucky rabbit's foot or a, or a horseshoe. So this is um, this recipe for a witch cake, which is this unappetizing combination of rye or barley with the children's urine. And so she persuades Tituba and her husband, John Indian, to bake the cake and then to feed it to the family dog. And the idea is that if the dog became bewitched, it proved that the children were too. Again, this is a very traditional English technique for identifying witches. And if all went well, the person or persons responsible for the girl's afflictions would be exposed. Now, meanwhile, the number of afflicted girls continued to grow with the addition of Elizabeth Hubbard, Susanna Sheldon, and Mary Warren. And again, they're contorting into these grotesque poses. They're falling down in frozen postures. They're complaining about being bit and pinched. And in a village where everyone believed that the devil was real, that the devil is close at hand, that he acted out in the real world, the suspected affliction of the girls became an obsession. Now, sometime between February 25th, when Tichuba baked the witch cake, and February 29th, all of this actually starts on a leap year, uh, February 29th is when the arrest warrants were issued. Betty Paris and Abigail Williams named their afflictors and the witch hunt began. And they began by naming three women, three women, all of them vulnerable in various ways. So first we have Tituba, the enslaved woman in the Paris household. Then we've got Sarah Good, who was the town beggar who was known for having a really bad temper, even to people who tried to show her charity. She had a habit of muttering to herself. And so some folks would um, misinterpret that muttering as maybe she was casting spells. And then the third woman accused was Sarah Osborne. And Sarah Osborne was an old bedridden Salem villager. She'd been old, uh, she'd been sick for some time and wasn't able to go to church. And so that made her kind of suspect but she had also scandalized the community when she purchased the contract of her indentured servant, Alexander Osborne, 
and married him. And instead of giving land to her land to her sons, which was the the hierarchy, the the land was supposed to go from her uh, sons from her first marriage, she instead kept the land for herself and for her new husband. Um, So again, three three women, all vulnerable in, in different ways. Now, the judicial procedure in Massachusetts fell into three parts. You'd have the preliminary examination where the accusations were first explored. You'd have, secondly, the grand jury hearing, which assessed the case that the preliminary examination had established, and then they would decide whether or not to make formal charges. And then finally, the third step is if formal charges were made, then the trial actually would happen. And I always say that this explosion of witchcraft accusations really could not have come at a worse time. And um, quite a few historians have recognized that communities that are under stress, communities that are experiencing some kind of anxiety or pressure, they're the ones that are most prone to have a witch hunt. Um, So a couple of things are happening, probably most notably is, Uh, conflict with indigenous people. Um, Most notably in 1675, we have the start of what came to be known as King Philip's War. And that resulted in more deaths relative to the size of the population than any other war in American history. So chances are you knew someone who had died as a result from King Philip's War. And there's one prominent historian, Mary Beth Norton, who argues that a lot of the afflicted girls who were refugees from Maine, which is very close to Massachusetts, and Salem was kind of a place for these um, uh, refugees, um, uh, that they were experiencing PTSD, um, that the, the stress of that of King Philip's War and of of being a refugee had caused them to be more vulnerable um, to any kind of um, um, affliction or or fit. After that, we got a decade later in 1865, over in England, King James II's government revoked the original Massachusetts charter that had enabled the colonists to really just do their own thing without interference from England. Um, And In its place, a much more authoritarian structure replaced that previous um, solitary neglect charter with a new governor who wants to unite New England and New York and New Jersey into the single dominion. Um, He also abolished uh, colonial assemblies, restricted town meetings, imposed direct control over militia appointments, and probably most scandalously for the Puritans, permitted the first public celebration of Christmas. Um, And this doesn't seem like a scandalous thing to us perhaps, but for the Puritans who don't wanna have that celebration, they think this is really blasphemous. Anyway, so William III is eventually going to replace James II, William of Orange, um, as King of England in 1689. And so that old, uh, very top-down government was overthrown. But while they're waiting for this new governor to arrive, once the new uh, monarch was installed in London, um, they're they're really just kind of in flux. Um, So again, we've got a lot of anxiety that's being produced by uh, conflict with indigenous groups, with indigenous tribes, and we've got this new government shakeup that's really throwing everything into flux. So while they're waiting for the new governor, William Phipps, to show up, 
before he gets there, they can only have preliminary court hearings. So remember the, the judicial system is set up three different steps. So they can only do step number one until William Phipps shows up. So in that interim period, it's really falls to two Salem town members, John Hawthorne and Jonathan Corwin, who were appointed to go over to Salem Village and take charge of these pretrials. The first of the pretrials starts on March 1st, 1692, where Tichiba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne, remember the original three women accused of witchcraft, were brought to this informal trial. And this is where the afflicted girls get to face off against their so-called tormentors. The accused were questioned one at a time, starting with Sarah Good, remember the town beggar. John Hawthorne led the interrogations. And I, and I say that these are interrogations because they better resembled a modern day police detective grilling a subject for a confession rather than this being an impartial judge who just wants to hear the facts of the case. And when you read the primary documents, when you read these court transcripts, the style and the form of the questions really indicates that the magistrates thought that the women were guilty. There's no presumed innocent until proven guilty. It almost seems to be the reverse of that. Um, he would ask questions like, what evil spirit have you familiarity with? Or have you made no contact with the devil? Or even why do you hurt these children? And Sarah Good, her denials were to no avail. Every time she tried to answer the questions, every time she tried to claim her innocence, the afflicted girls, they are writhing on the floor. They're calling out in torment. They're claiming that they're being tortured by invisible specters that were being projected from the defendant. And the more that Sarah Good denied these uh, claims, the, this only is leading to more cries and more painful writhing from the girls. And this, this pre-trial would set a pretty peculiar precedent for the kind of evidence that would be admissible in court. Um, what I think another thing that a lot of folks don't realize is that which trial cases, I wouldn't say they, they happen fairly often, but it's not as though the Salem witch trials that this was the only time that a group of individuals were accused of and were persecuted, executed for witchcraft. It's really just one historian says this is a, a blip um, in this long, regrettable history, because really the Salem witch trials, kind of the, the heat of it, the most intense moments of it um, is nine months. And, and, and it can feel like, wow, if everybody knows about the Salem witch trials, doesn't it feel like it would have gone on for a decade or something? But it's, it's nine months, um, 25 people are gonna die, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to that in just a little bit. Um, but this, this pretrial, what makes the Salem witch trials super unique is the admittance of what came to be known as spectral evidence. So the afflicted girls, they claim that specters in the shape of a particular individual or an animal appeared to them and tried to recruit them as witches through this combination of temptation and torment. And the accusers and their supporters insisted that those accused of witchcraft must have given permission to the devil in order to appear in their likeness and that these witches must be in league with Satan. Now in previous witch trials, the judges had imposed really high standards of proof, which resulted in a majority of those being accused being acquitted. 
But when England revoked their charter, Massachusetts charter in 1685, it really threw the judicial system into disarray. Um, and so these so-called specters who are invisible to everybody except for the person who is so-called being afflicted, that was allowed as admissible evidence. So as an example, Anne Putnam Jr., she's claiming that the specter of Sarah Good tortured her and prodded her to write her name in the devil's book. Um, when Sarah Osborne stood before her peers, the same thing happens. She's grilled about, why are you tormenting the accusers? Osborne denied it to be true. And then the young women, they're screaming and they're yelling as if they're being tortured. Now, the third individual uh, to be accused, Tituba, took a different tactic from her co-defendants. And at first she initially denied the charges against her, but eventually she admitted to being a witch. Now it's possible that she felt it was impossible for an enslaved woman like herself to even begin to refute allegations put to her by figures in authority. And kind of ironically, it turned out she stumbled upon the best strategy for survival. And it soon became clear that people who confessed to witchcraft wouldn't be, um, uh, or who, who confessed rather to witchcraft wouldn't be executed. And instead, if you confessed, you would be used as witnesses in other cases. So anyone who confessed, who identified fellow witches, referred to as naming names, and then repented would go free. So Tituba says, yes, I was a witch. She says, quote, I saw a thing like a man and told me to serve him. And she claimed that Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, along with three strangers from Boston, that they were the ones responsible for hurting the girls. Tituba would be questioned three more times over the next four days, and she provided detailed evidence of Satan's work. She had signed the devil's book in her own blood. She had seen Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne's marks in the book. And in all, she claimed that there were the marks or the signatures of nine other witches. And Tituba's confession became a kind of revelation. There were more witches in Salem. And in effect, it created a kind of Puritan Pandora box that set neighbor against neighbor. And with that confession, the Salem witch hunt would now begin in earnest. We'll be right back after this quick break. If you're enjoying today's episode, we encourage you to follow the Virginia Council for the Social Studies on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram so that you don't miss any of the programs and initiatives this fall. You can find us on all of those social media platforms under VA Social Studies, all one word. And now, back to the show. All right, so we um, have just had our first three women who testified um, in this pretrial. Uh, Tituba has confessed and really, again, has her confession and admittance that there were more witches in Salem is really going to be the spark that turns this tinderbox into a full fire. Um, but remember that all they can do up until Sir William Phipps's arrival is just pre-trial. And when Phipps arrived in Boston in May 14th, he discovered that over four dozen people had been arrested on charges of witchcraft. And then the number of accused witches was growing daily. 
Um, just as an example, over the course of the trials, one of the afflicted girls, Anne Putnam Jr., all by herself claimed to be bewitched by 68 separate people. Now, the governor realizing, the new governor, William Phipps, recognizing that if the um, witch trials were to carry out in the regular everyday court, that the court system would be completely overwhelmed. Um, another unknown kind of thing about the Puritans is that they love to sue each other and they are constantly in the courts. They are constantly having conflict with one another, um, land disputes, neighborhood disputes, etc. So he recognizes that we will not be able to have any of these other trials happening um, if we just continue in the way that we've been doing um, and have the witch trials happen in the regular court. So he sets up a special court called Oye in Termine, meaning to hear and determine to address all of those accumulating court cases, again, that would have overwhelmed the regular court system. The special court starts on June 2nd. They meet in Salem town and the court turned out to be swift and ruthless. The very first person to come to trial under Oye and Termine was a woman by the name of Bridget Bishop. And it's important to note that Bridget Bishop was not the first witch accused, but the Crown attorney believed that her case was the strongest case for conviction. She'd been accused as a witch before, back in 1679, but had been acquitted for lack of evidence. She was also a property owner. She was known to speak her mind. She'd been married several times. She was older. She was quarrelsome. She was always suing her neighbors. Bridget Bishop fit everybody's idea of a witch. And as you can expect, when she said, I'm not a witch, I don't even know what a witch is, the afflicted girls, they continued to react to that testimony in the same way that they had during the original pre-trials. They writhed on the floor, they screamed in pain, they mimicked the movements of Bridget Bishop. When she raises her hands, they raise their hands. When she lifts her head to the sky, they lift their heads as well. Um, they claim they're being attacked by specters in the shape of that person or a familiar, which would be a kind of a shape-shifting animal, often in the shape of a bird or some kind of barn animal. Um, and unfortunately, Bridget Bishop, despite her protests of being a witch, she was hanged eight days later at Gallows Hill in Salem Town, officially becoming the first victim of the trials. Now, the first people who had been accused of being a witch were kind of the usual suspects. They were folks who were of low status in the community. So we've got Sarah Good, the town beggar. We've got Sarah Osborne, remember, who had scandalized the town because she married her indentured servant, and then Tituba, an enslaved woman. The people that followed, however, were consider, considered upstanding citizens. And that's another way in which the Salem trials is very different from your other typical kinds of New England witch cases. Um, take, for example, Rebecca Nurse. Rebecca Nurse, 70, 71 years old, infirm, very deaf, a highly respected member of the Salem Town Church and whose specter, according to Ann Putnam Jr. and Abigail Williams had attacked them in mid-March of 1692. It was so unlikely that Rebecca Nurse was a witch that 39 people signed a petition saying that there was no way that Rebecca Nurse was a witch. And this isn't something that you would just do lightly. You're not gonna sign your name to a piece of paper that might get you accused of being a witch. 
Um, but most people who supported Nurse were from the east side of Salem town. They're more liberal, they're more prosperous. And the people who believed that she was a witch were largely from Salem village, poorer farmers who were more superstitious. The nurse jury originally came back with a verdict of not guilty, much to the displeasure of Chief Justice William Stoughton, who told the jury to go back and to consider again. Um, and when we think about our judicial system today, it's imperfect, certainly. But I can't think of a case where a, a judge has heard the jury say not guilty and he says wrong, go think about that again. So the jury, they reconvene, this time they come back with a verdict of guilty. And on July 19th, 1692, nurse rode with four other convicted witches to be hanged at Gallows Hill. Now, normally Rebecca Nurse's religious, economic, and political standing would have protected her from charges, or at least kept them from being taken seriously. But her conviction demonstrated that almost no one in the colony was safe. People who scoffed at these accusations of witchcraft, they risked becoming targets of accusations themselves. Um, John Proctor, the central figure in Arthur Miller's fictionalized account of the Salem witch hunt, The Crucible, he was an opinionated tavern owner who openly denounced the witch hunt, testifying against Proctor and Putnam, Abigail Williams, John Indian, Elizabeth Booth. They testified that ghosts had come to them and accused Proctor of serial murder. Uh, John Proctor, he fought back. He accused the confessed witches of lying. He complained that he was being tortured in prison. He demanded that his trial be moved to Boston so he could get a more, failed, a more fair trial. Uh, but all of these efforts proved futile. Uh, Proctor was hanged. His wife, Elizabeth, who was also convicted of witchcraft, was spared execution only because of her pregnancy. Um, we we probably know best about the Proctors because of the Crucible, but the one execution that caused the most unease in Salem was probably that of the ex-minister George Burroughs. And George Burroughs was living in Maine in 1692. And this is another thing, kind of tangentially, that I always find so amazing about the Salem witch trials is that it's, it's not just Salem. We've got about a dozen communities in the surrounding area who are being impacted. And in fact, Mary Beth Norton, um, whose book In the Devil's Snare, talks about how we should really talk about it as the Essex County witch trials, not just the Salem witch trials, but it doesn't quite roll off the tongue the same way. So Burroughs, he was living in Maine um, and was identified by several of his accusers as actually being the ringleader of the witches. And Putnam claimed that Burroughs bewitched soldiers during a failed military campaign against Native Americans in 1688, uh, which was really just the first of a string of military disasters that would be blamed on an alliance between the devil and indigenous groups. Um, among Burroughs' 30 accusers was the 19-year-old Mercy Lewis. She was a refugee from the frontier wars and Lewis proved to be probably the most imaginative of the young accusers. She offered unusually vivid testimony against Burroughs, uh, telling the court that Burroughs flew her to the top of a mountain, pointing towards the surrounding land, promised her all of the kingdom if she would only sign the devil's book. Um, at his execution, the defendants 
in the Puritan colonies was expected to confess and thus to save your soul. But when Burroughs was brought to Gallows Hill, he continued to insist on his innocence. And then he recited the Lord's Prayer perfectly. And this is something that witches were thought incapable of doing. They couldn't pray. They couldn't read the Bible. This was a sign that you were bewitched or that you were in league with the devil. And so when he recited the Lord's Prayer perfectly, it made the people who were there to witness the execution, because these executions are very public affairs, they make them kind of doubt themselves. How, how did he do that? If he's really a witch, how did he do that? But Cotton Mather, um, the, the prominent um, Puritan minister of the day, he's up on his horse and he intervenes. He reminds the court that, um, or the crowd that, that Burroughs had had his day in court. So one of the big questions about the Salem trials, not just is how it started, but is how, how did it end? And, and why did it end in such a swift way? The magistrates, they claimed that they weren't convicting solely on the basis of spectral testimony. Remember, that's that um, I saw Goody Proctor's specter, her ghost in devil with in, in, in league with the devil in the woods. Um, so they're claiming we're not just we're not just convicting people based on spectral evidence, but it was pretty clear to observers that the scenes of the afflicted girls in court really had a profound impact on the magistrates. But the court's trump card against their critics of spectral evidence was the over 50 accused witches who confessed to their crimes. So they're saying, well, if none of this is real, if there actually aren't witches, why have over 50 people already confessed to being a witch? But a growing number of those who had confessed were now recanting. They claimed that they had incriminated themselves and others under pressure from officials in hopes that their lives would be spared for cooperating with the court. And so at this point, sometime around October of 1692, Governor Phipps decided that the fiasco had to end. The afflicted girls were starting to accuse really prominent citizens of witchcraft, including Phipps's wife, even Cotton Mather. And so Phipps informed the government in London that he um, was prohibiting further arrests for witchcraft. Now there still were about 52 people still in prison, um, largely from Andover, Massachusetts. They were awaiting um, their, their sentencing, um, but the court acquitted 49 of them and convicted three to be executed. But the governor, governor intervened again and said, no, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna execute anybody anymore. And so the crisis, it seemed then was at its end. So 25 people died, 19 people were hanged, at least five died in prison that we know of, and one died from being pressed to death. Um, and this is Giles Corey. Giles Corey, he refused to declare himself either guilty or innocent. And so large stones were placed on his chest in order to press the truth out of him. And popular memory tells that when asked are you going to plead guilty or innocent? Corey simply said, more weight. And this is the only recorded incident in uh, colonial history, North American history of someone being pressed to death. Once the trials came to an end, I think there was kind of immediate recognition that mistakes had been made. Um, 
and a period of atonement began in the colony following the release of the surviving accused witches. In 1697, there was a day of public fasting um, in order to ask God for forgiveness. On that day, one of the Salem judges, Samuel Sewell, he publicly repented for his part in the affair and the jurors who had condemned the witches, they did the same. Samuel Paris, he conceded errors of judgment, but mostly shifted blame to others. And he was replaced as minister of Samuel Village by Thomas Green, who really devoted his career to putting his torn congregation back together. In 1706, Ann Putnam Jr. apologized. She said that the devil had made her lie. And then in 1711, acknowledging that mistakes had been made, the state of Massachusetts played reparation, paid reparations to the families of those who were executed um, and those who had been convicted of witchcraft. So that's, that's the story. That's what we know. Those are the names and the dates and the facts. Um, you know, one of the great ironies is that the witch scare erupted in Salem of all places. The word Salem actually means peace. It's from the Hebrew word for shalom. And the town's founders had hoped that Salem would be a village of peace. And they'd also drawn the word Salem from Jerusalem, hoping that the new village would serve as the foundation for a new Jerusalem. Um, the biggest question that looms is, is probably one that we're never going to know the answer to, one of the frustrating parts about history, I suppose. And that's why did they do it? Why did the afflicted girls claim that they were afflicted? And for about 250 years after the trials, the predominant opinion had been that the girls were making it up. Um, and early scholars of the witch hunt, they tended to focus on the issue of blame, that some, some defended those involved as well-meaning but misguided. Others condemned the Puritans as superstitious zealots and accused them of taking part in a murderous conspiracy. But really since the 1960s, historians and sociologists and anthropologists and even biologists, they've embarked in new schools of thought and they've been more inclined to seek for explanations for why a witch panic of this magnitude erupted rather than who can we blame. And to understand the Salem witch trials is to really know that the witch scare had complex social roots. It drew upon pre-existing rivalries and disputes within the rapidly growing Massachusetts port town between urban and rural residents, between wealthier commercially oriented merchants and subsistent oriented farmers, between congregationalists and other religious uh, denominations, and so rather than this being an unforgettable or, or forgettable blip in this long history of, of you know, bad luck or atrocities, I think instead the witch trials, they offer us a window into this colonial period, into the anxieties and to the social tensions that accompanied New England's increasing integration into the Atlantic economy. Uh, economy. And I always stress that that even though witch hunts were common in North America, nothing about this tragedy was inevitable. We just have an unfortunate combination about an ongoing frontier war, economic conditions, weather patterns, congregational strife, personal jealousies, maybe even teenage boredom. 
but all of these only by understanding these multifaceted reasons can we really account for the spiraling accusations for the trials and the executions that occurred in the spring and summer of 1692.